Welcome to the Eucharist Podcast with Wyoming Catholic College, responding to the call for Eucharistic renewal by sharing wisdom in God's country. I'm Jeremy Holmes, Academic Dean at Wyoming Catholic College. And I'm Kyle Washett, its President, and welcome to this episode. We are in the year of Eucharistic renewal called for by the bishops of the United States and Uh, As a result, there have been various events uh, around the country, processions, uh, and the Eucharist has generally been in the news uh, these last number of months, really kicked off by the infamous Pew Research conclusion announcing to the world that only one-third of Catholics believe what the Church teaches regarding the Eucharist. Now, uh, there's been some controversy around the Pew Research. Uh, I, I, I am a teacher, uh, and I also create multiple choice questions <laughs> to discern what people believe. And I can say from experience, it is a difficult art, especially in the area of theology, to craft a question uh, that does not admit of various ways of reading it. And the famous question that gets cited the most from the Pew Research Uh, asked people whether they believed that the bread and wine, quote-unquote, actually become the body and blood of Jesus. Now, as many have pointed out, um, someone might get more confused by that question the better he understands the church's teaching. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You imagine, well, does it actually turn into the body? Of course not. Like, it's still bread, obviously. I go up there, and it does not look like human flesh. Right. So um, what does this actually becomes mean? So a a Catholic group followed up sometime later. Um, The Catholic Leadership Institute... uh, made a much bigger survey of more Catholics focusing in on those who attend Mass weekly, and uh, their survey claimed to find much greater adherence to church teaching among Catholics on the Eucharist. Uh, Suffice it to say, however, um, polls can be difficult to interpret. How seriously should we take the Pew Research conclusions? Well, I think it's a great thing that the bishops took it seriously enough to start a year of Eucharistic renewal because any year is a great time for Eucharistic renewal. Amen. But it seems beyond question there's some kind of confusion in the air. Uh, So sometime after all of this broke in the news, uh, Father Thomas Rees, the the, the well-known Jesuit priest, published an article at the National Catholic Reporter in which he urged people to drop the idea of transubstantiation. Um, to, to, to quote him, quote, forget tra- transubstantiation, end quote. Uh, and, and this, in other words, he's telling people the language about the Eucharist that you will find in the universal catechism of the Catholic Church is no longer relevant, useful, or true. Uh, now, if someone at Father Reese's level can say that about the catechism, there's confusion in the air. Absolutely. How, how do we talk about this? That's what I thought was the strangest thing about Father East's claim is, I believe in the real presence, just not transubstantiation. Yeah, and, and you know, one thing that 
people often don't appreciate. I mean, Catholics who who do firmly believe in the Eucharist don't realize because they're so accustomed to the words. The phrase real presence is not very helpful unless you have a background kind of technical terminology like transubstantiation to anchor it because any presence that isn't real just isn't a presence. And so I could talk about any presence of Christ, the, the way that Christ is present in the Gospels, the way that Christ is present in the congregation, uh, the, you know, the way that Christ is present in an icon of Christ. All of these could be called real presences because it's not like they're fake. So for someone like Father Reese to say, I believe in the real presence, doesn't tell me a whole lot about what he believes unless we have another language in the background to anchor it down. That, that seems the real key. It's one thing to say, well, we have defined doctrines or key principles of belief, but the story of the church is precisely trying to find in her doctrine language to communicate what that means so that two believers could get together and when they say, we believe this, whatever this point of doctrine is, we can then talk about it. That's the whole point you opened with the problem with the Pew Research, is how do you talk about the question of Christ's presence in the Eucharist in a way that when you ask that question, everyone knows what's being asked and everyone knows what they mean by their answer. And this is how the phrase real presence came about uh, and how the, the, the term transubstantiation was invented. That is to say, the church didn't need such language for nearly a thousand years. Everyone was comfortable with and, and intuitively grasped what the church was saying about the Eucharist. But there came a point where folks like Berengarius, to, to, to mention just one, said things about the Eucharist and people could not tell whether or not he believed the same thing they did. And so they had to get more and more careful with their language until it became possible for two Christians to say to each other, I believe in the real presence, and I believe in the real presence, and know that they agreed with each other. So in fact, transubstantiation enters maybe a thousand years into the church's conversation. And the phrase real presence actually doesn't come in until the late 13th century. So for example, Thomas Aquinas, who's treatise on the Eucharist was used at the Council of Trent and is a major player in how we talk today, never uses the phrase real presence. It came in in Pope Urban's decree promulgating the Feast of Corpus Christi. That's, the, as far as I can tell, the first time the phrase real presence was used. So, so not only then is the first 1,300 years of the church not talking about real presence, there's an entire lung of the church, the Eastern Church, the traditions of St. Gregory the Theologian, the Cappadocians, all of the devotions of the Byzantine liturgies, which really, really believe, as you can tell from the language around the Eucharist and around their liturgies, really believe that Christ is present in the Eucharist, and yet don't use this phrase, real presence. That's right. And uh, at, at Wyoming Catholic College, we have both a Roman Rite chaplaincy and a Byzantine Eastern Rite chaplaincy. And so um, we we have these conversations on a regular basis uh, and, and our Western Rite students you know, can be surprised to, to find that tr the, the phrase transubstantiation or real presence doesn't play a major part in the Eastern Church because it never needed to. They never had a crisis the way the Western Church did. Um, now, Father Reese uses some phrasing that, uh, is, that might also be familiar in the conversation between East and West. Um, he says, after he says, forget transubstantiation, he says, Better to admit that Christ's presence in the Eucharist is an unexplainable mystery that our little minds cannot comprehend. 
end quote. There's something valid about that. Absolutely true, in fact. And, and, and this is an emphasis that you'll tend to get from the East, that uh, a concern that as we get technical, let's not think that we have talked our way all the way through the mystery so there is no unexplainable mystery. Right? But again, when you just say, let's both agree that we believe in an unexplainable mystery, we don't know that we are both believing in the same unexplainable mystery. We need the technical language to pin down what mystery precisely are we saying we believe in that we cannot explain. Right. So this is the thing that seems obvious both by the Pew Research and by the Father Reese uh, subsequent article, which is the church is again in a moment of crisis in regard to her Eucharistic belief. Not because huge numbers of the church probably do not actually believe the right thing. I think many, many Catholics do. But we're at a crisis of how do we talk about it? How do we communicate this in an effective way to each other, to the world outside us, and to our brothers and sisters in the faith, whether that be Protestants, whether that be other Eastern Christians, or the rest? And so there it seems a really interesting question of, okay, well, why— do you guys over there in Wyoming Catholic College in this tiny little rural town think that you can speak so effectively to a church in crisis? Right. And I think the starting point for, you know, why are we going to speak about the Eucharist in this year and in response to this crisis is simply that we have these conversations regularly with students in which the thing we do is take the church's technical language and show how it is not merely abstruse, but actually very living and effectual. It's very concrete and earthy language. Uh, it, it is, uh, Father Reese emphasizes that nobody understands this anymore. We regularly show students that they already understood it before they had the technical language. Now they just have words for what they have been thinking. So we've been we've been doing this. Right. In fact, our entire mode of doing theology here at Wyoming Catholic is not to create language so we can churn out great new academic publications and speak to other professional theologians, but precisely to go in the opposite way. How are we going to let the technical language of theology become a helpful evangelical tool for our students for explaining their own experience to themselves and to others? That's our project. And as I mentioned, we have uh, the church both west and east represented on our campus. In the course where we do our deep dive on the Eucharist, uh, we have half our time devoted to the greatest western exponent of the Eucharist, St. Thomas Aquinas, and half our time devoted to St. Nicholas Cabasilas, a great eastern exponent of the Eucharist. So we, we also have had these conversations where uh, you need to, to, to balance the technical precision with keeping the mystery alive. And at the same time, also having the conversations of how do we communicate this language of the tradition to a contemporary world that finds that language impenetrable. So there's a dialogue between East and West. There's a dialogue with your own experience and the language of the theological tradition and a dialogue between the theological tradition of the Christian church and the contemporary world's own crisis. St. Tom, uh, Thomas Aquinas um, used Aristotelian philosophy, and, and Father Reese said in his article that Thomas Aquinas used Aristotelianism, the avant-garde philosophy of his time, to explain the Eucharist to his generation. And then he says this, 
what worked in the 13th century will not work today. If he were alive today, he would not use Aristotelianism because nobody grasps it in the 21st century, close quote. One of our major projects at Wyoming Catholic College is to have a, the dialogue between the ancients and the moderns to show that what Father Reese is saying here is not true. That it's not the case that the best philosophy in the 13th century must be irrelevant because hundreds of years have gone by, but that once you have found a truth, it remains true. And the, you know, the, the, the older and traditional thoughts are still vitally helpful in the modern world, and the modern world can help us unpack those old thoughts in a fresh way. So that's two of the great reasons that I think we here at Wyoming Catholic College can speak especially to the crisis of the church today. One, our fundamental goal is how do we speak from the tradition, from the ancients, effectively to our contemporary crisis? Two, how do we speak in the language of both the Eastern tradition and the Western tradition of Christianity? That dialogue happens daily, as Jeremy noted in our students' lives every day between the chapels and the classroom. But there's also something that is so close to us that that we tend not to think of it day-to-day here in Lander, Wyoming, which is to the fact that we are uh, where we are, that we, it's so much a part of our education here out in uh, what you might just call the wilderness of Wyoming. And the wilderness there, I think, is something that maybe being here in Wyoming we're especially able to point to. It struck me the other day that the Eucharist is a wilderness meal, at least in its origins. People going to church every Sunday in the middle of, you know, um, Minneapolis or Dallas or New York may wonder what you mean when you say, they say, my Eucharist is not a wilderness meal. What, what's going on <laughs> That's with right. your Eucharist? Yes, right. So let me say this. When the, the origins of the Eucharist, when God set us up for the celebration of the Eucharist, beginning with the Exodus— he had the Israelites celebrate the Passover meal, but the Passover meal was intended as a meal to take them into the wilderness. And when they come into the wilderness, God nourishes them with manna, namely the food that nourishes them in the wilderness on their journey. And then the Israelites come to Mount Sinai and they come to worship at Mount Sinai, the entire point of the Exodus, this encounter with God in the wilderness, and they have a sacrificial Passover-like meal there at the foot of Mount Sinai to enact the covenant. So when Jesus gathers his disciples with him for the Last Supper in Jerusalem, they're celebrating the Passover meal, but the very context of the Passover meal is to remember being in the wilderness and the encounter and the eating with God that took place in the wilderness. And it's helpful to think about what did wilderness mean in that first context it didn't mean primarily the place of desert sands and wild animals. It meant primarily the place where you come out from Egypt. You come away from that world that has entrapped and enslaved you some, so long to, a, pl- to a, a place where you can be apart with God. And that aspect that of coming out of the world is or should be Uh, part of our experience every time we enter into the mass that to begin with there are there's a sacred area a sacred place that where the doings of the world can't come in and when you you enter that sacred place there should be as you step over the the threshold of the church doors 
you should have the sense of leaving behind all earthly cares. Which is what the Byzantine liturgy sings every Eucharistic celebration. That's what we have to do to enter into this event. Leave aside all earthly cares. And in addition to that, uh, on, on Sunday, the Lord's Day, what the church has exhorted us to, uh, whether or not this is a reality in our practice, is that we need to have also a kind of sacred precinct in time. There's a, there's, a, there's a boundary in time as well as in space around the Mass. As Saturday evening comes on and the, and the Lord's Day begins, we should feel that we have left behind everyday time. We have entered into a new dimension with the Lord's Day. This is the day of the Eucharistic sacrifice. So our students here at Wyoming Catholic College have been called out into the wilderness they spend their days in a kind of retreat atmosphere as they study, as they focus on and immerse themselves in the traditions of the Eastern Church and the Western Church, as they immerse themselves in the texts that are written by the great fathers and doctors of the church, as along with the scriptural texts, and they are rearticulating to themselves the experience they have of the Eucharist here in the wilderness of Wyoming in a way that is compelling to themselves and to the contemporary society they go to. Now, we're a small group of students. There's only a few of us that get to do this together for four years here in Lander, Wyoming. But this crisis of the church is widespread. And so we're so excited to be able to share the fruits of this experience with a wider audience. So the first thing we're going to do in this podcast series is get into the church's technical language of transubstantiation and show how spiritually fruitful it is, how it really captures the actual experience of Catholics in the sacrament. And then, having done that, we're going to be able to return to what I was talking about, the original setting for the Eucharist, going through the Old Testament to how God prepared us for its institution, all the way to Christ, celebrating it with his disciples at the Last Supper, and then celebrating it after the resurrection. And that's going to give us everything we need to talk about the Eucharist in its widest context today, its native habitat, you might say, the sacrifice of the new covenant. And intermixed with all of that, we'll then bring in other guests to talk about various aspects of the Eucharist after we've laid that groundwork. We're excited to get going. Thank you for listening to the Eucharistic Podcast at Wyoming Catholic College. To learn more about Wyoming Catholic College, visit wyomingcatholic.edu.